uh, message in this series on forgiveness. That means uh, this week and next, and we're in the same text. Luke chapter 15, very familiar. Preached on it uh, a number of times. Uh, many of you have read uh, Tim Keller's book, The Prodigal God, which is a great uh, articulation of the message there. More and more I'm convinced that uh, we need to do what Luther said. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves. We need to beat it into our minds because everything in us screams against it. We're all into our own efforts. We're into our own achievements. When we think of forgiveness, we always think of it on a horizontal plane rather than a vertical plane. If we have indeed been forgiven much, how much ought we not to forgive much? And we see that here in this text. So let's take a look at it. We're going to look at the first part of it, which is the uh, third part of the parable. Remember, Jesus talks about lost sheep, lost coin, and then two lost sons. And we look at the younger one today, beginning in verse 11, Luke chapter 15. And Jesus said to the tax collectors, to the sinners to the scribes, to the Pharisees. We see them all in the first two verses of the chapter. He said to them, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. His father divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. No one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quickly, bring quickly the, the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. A reporter once asked Mark Twain, who, in your opinion, is the greatest storyteller that's ever lived? Now, remember, Twain was an author. He was a poet. He was also a great storyteller. And within a second, he answered Jesus Christ. Now, Mark Twain carried no brief for Christianity, and yet he was able to say, in his opinion, Jesus Christ was the greatest storyteller ever. But the questioner wasn't finished. He said to him, sir, what do you think was Jesus' greatest story? And maybe two or three seconds went by, and Mark Twain said, the prodigal son. In 1958, 
in Jerusalem, there was a scholar and a churchman by the name of Kenneth Craig who was giving a lecture. He was lecturing on the Christian-Muslim debate in the Middle Ages. And as he spoke, he made this point. He said that the story of the prodigal son is one that Muslims love to take and use against the gospel. They say, here is a man who leaves his father, who is God, goes into a distant country, gets into trouble, loses everything. Then in the midst of his pain, he determines to return home. And when he gets home, he's forgiven, he's welcomed, he's celebrated. And then the Muslims say this, see, there's no need for a savior. There's no need for an atonement. There's no need for a cross. He simply returns and is accepted. Ergo, Jesus is a good Muslim. Years ago, there was a food manufacturer that made a cake mix that all of you know. And when they tested it, they found that this cake mix was superior to anything on the market. It mixed better, no lumps. It would rise more quickly in the oven, and it tasted better. And they released it. All you needed to do was add some water to the cake mix. They released it and nobody bought it. Within three months, the manufacturer pulled it all off the shelf all over the country. They did some new analysis. They decided to make one change and to change the label. They said new and improved. They put it back on the shelf. And it sold like hotcakes. In fact, today, 50 years later, this brand of cake mix, Duncan Hines, is the most famous and most highly sought after cake mix that you can buy. You say, did they change the formula? No. Is it exactly the same mix? Absolutely. Do you still add water? Yes. The only difference is now you add an egg. And what the researchers were able to determine is people didn't buy it unless they felt that they needed to do something significant, like add an egg. According to these researchers, we as Americans aren't comfortable unless we add something significant. You know something? When it comes to forgiveness, when it comes to the gospel, it's exactly the same way. And yet nowhere is our inability to add anything more clearly seen than in the story of these two sons and their father. So let's dig in. First of all, notice the context. Look at verse 11. And Jesus said there was a man who had two sons. Now notice the audience. These are the scribes and Pharisees who again have come to Jesus, the religious crowd, and they make the same complaint. He is eating, he is welcoming tax collectors and sinners. 
According to the Jewish legal code, no rabbi was to deal with the people of the land. The people of the land were those who were regarded as sinners, and chief among them were tax collectors. Last week, we looked at Zacchaeus. It's exactly the same charge leveled against Jesus. He is eating with a chief tax collector. He is welcoming him. And so in response, Jesus tells this story. It's one long parable. It begins with a sheep that is lost. He follows it with a coin that is lost. And then we have the story of two sons who are lost. That's interesting. In the first part of the story, the lost sheep, it's the shepherd who goes out and finds that sheep, puts it on his shoulders, and carries it back. In the second part of the parable, it's a lost coin. And this woman who has lost one of these ten coins that was a necklace around her neck that was given to her by her husband. She searches feverishly until she finds the coin. So in the first part of the story, it's a shepherd that goes out and finds a sheep. In the second part of the story, it's the woman who finds her lost coin. But in this third part of this parable, there's a question. Who is it who does the finding? And the answer to that question requires that we rescue the story from our typical Western presuppositions. You see, when Jesus tells this story, he tells it to people who live in a different context a different cultural context. He himself lives in a different cultural context. And the only way anyone can use this story to believe that, think more highly of themselves or believe that the only way to be rescued is by cooperation, the only way to think that someone can use this story to think that Jesus is a good Muslim is to wrench it out of its original context And make it say something it doesn't say. Second, notice not only the context, notice the claim. Look at verse 12. The younger son said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. In other words, I want mine and I want it now. In other words, I don't care about you. In other words, I don't care if I rip your world apart. You see, in Jesus' day, the only person who could divide an estate was the person who owned it, and that was the father. And an estate was always divided when the father was on his deathbed. Think of Isaac and Jacob. Think of David and Solomon. And yet here Jesus says, this younger son comes to his father and he lays claim to his inheritance. He says, Father, give me the property that is due me. Now that requires three clear assumptions. First of all, the first assumption is, I wish you were dead. The second assumption is, I want what is yours that will be mine, and I want it now. And then thirdly, I don't care about anybody but myself. 
You see, for him to divide his property with his younger son to give him his inheritance meant that he gave his older son his inheritance. The younger would get one-third, the older would get two-thirds. In other words, the father disinvests himself of his own worth. And Jesus says, amazingly, this father does it. No Middle Eastern father would have acted this way. And yet Jesus says he does. He allows his younger son to violate every rule in Israel. He allows him to violate every principle that the Jews taught. In fact, it was a, it was a crime punishable by death. And yet the father allows him to dictate the distribution of the father's inheritance. It's a huge violation. And yet Jesus says, as soon as the father does it, the son liquidates all those assets. He says it this way, he gathered all that he had. In other words, he liquidated it. In other words, he sold it. In other words, he turned it into money. Now think about that. That's a public act. So not only has his father divided his inheritance before it was time, his father allows the son to liquidate those assets. The father allows the shame of the entire community to fall on his son, himself, and his family. It's an act that would instantly foment shame in the community. But the father's willing to allow him to do it. Because the son doesn't care about his father or his brother or the law or the community. All he cares about is himself. Third, notice the crisis. Look at verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And instantly we all want to project what that means. Some translate it wild living. Others translate it loose living. And yet Jesus, the words he uses there, do not imply immorality. They imply waste. They imply a total loss of the property that he once had. Now, according to the law of Israel, according to the Talmud, if a Jew was to lose their inheritance to a Gentile, then there would be a trial. And the trial would happen once the perpetrator was found. They'd bring him into the center of the town. The elders would encircle him and all of the townspeople would encircle him. They would, ga they would gather together all these burnt nuts and corn and put them into a, a large clay pot. And then every infraction would be read by the chief elder of the people. And every, and every time an infraction was read, as soon as that infraction was read, everyone would shout this man's name. And then once the final infraction is read and they've shouted his name, then the chief elder breaks the pot and out spills all this burnt corn and nuts that symbolize his life, a total waste. And then they bind him and they 
push him into the wilderness and they say, you are dead to us, you are cut off from us, you no longer can have any contact with us, and they drive him into the wilderness to die. That's the penalty for losing your inheritance, your property to Gentiles. Fourth, notice the conniving. Look at verse 17 and 18a. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and I will go to my father. Now, that's the natural impulse of the human heart. I once had it. I've lost it. I have nothing. Famine has hit. I know where there is an answer. I can go home. My father's servants have more than I do. I'm going to go home. And then he thinks to himself, but I can't go home because the trial awaits me. I've broken the rules. The village will capture me and they'll put me in the center of town and they'll begin this ceremony. But then he thinks further, the only way I can get home is if I get to my father before anyone else sees me and I beg him to make me one of his servants so that then I can earn back everything I've lost. And Jesus says, when he comes to himself. Now, in all of the Bible, in my experience, in all of the Bible, there's no phrase, there are no words that are more clearly misunderstood than that. What's it mean that he came to himself? Many people want to say that means he repented. He saw the error of his way and nothing could be further from the truth. Literally, what Jesus is saying is he took stock of himself. If this son repents, then Jesus is schizophrenic. Because in the first part of the parable, who is it that goes and gets the sheep? The sheep doesn't find his way home. The shepherd has to go and get him. Does the coin in the second part of the story cry out, I'm here? No, the woman goes and searches feverishly. If coming to his senses means that he humbles himself and repents, then this parable makes no sense. But that's not what Jesus is saying. What he literally says in Greek is he takes thought of himself. In other words, he redoubles his effort. He says, I've got a plan. I'm going to go home. I'm going to get to my father before anybody sees me. I'm going to fall on his mercy. And then I will say to him, I've sinned against heaven and against you. And you know something? Those words are not original with him. We find them in Exodus chapter 10. After the eighth plague on Egypt, Pharaoh calls in Moses and Aaron and he says exactly the same thing. I've sinned against heaven and against you. This guy's not repentant. He's resourceful. There's no remorse here. There's resiliency. 
He hatches a plan in hopes of softening his father's heart. I'll go back and I'll ask him for a job. And once I'm hired by him, maybe everybody will see that I'm, I'm making some money and I'm paying back my father. And the stigma will be lifted and the debt will be repaid and I won't die. You see, he just wants to save his own skin. Unlike the lost sheep and the lost coin, this guy is willfully lost. He's lost of his own making. He thinks he can fix it. He's totally deluded. And yet he starts walking home. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if that was the end of this story, then the Muslims might have a point. He started back. Maybe the scribes and Pharisees would understand this as any other moral teaching that they would give, that a person needs to change his ways, walk in a different path. This is what many Christians miss. They think the story ends here, but it doesn't. Because if you end it here, you miss the dramatic revelation of forgiveness. And so fifth, finally notice the cost. Look at verse 20b. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Meaning what? Meaning his father was watching for him. Maybe every day. When he was a long way off, his father saw in the dust this figure walking toward him. There's no surprise in the father's mind. He knows his son will fail. He knows that the only way he can rescue his son from judgment is to get to him before anyone else sees him. He knows if he's able to reconcile with his son before the judgment, there'll be no trial, there'll be no death. And so Jesus borrows language from Isaiah chapter 57 And he says, while he was still a long way off, ladies and gentlemen, if you know Jesus, if you know him savingly, that's where he saw you too, a long way off. His father sees him. And he runs to him. And he throws his arms around him. And he kisses him. Now think of the cost of that. I mean, think of the cost to his father in this entire story. In the beginning, the father is willing to liquidate his property. He's willing to divest himself of all that he has. He's willing to endure the public spectacle of a radical son. He's willing to endure all of the shame of the community that he would allow his son to do this rather than bringing him up on charges. That's a lot of cost. But that's nothing compared to what cost he's he's bearing here. Jesus says he runs. He picks up his robe and he runs. No father in Jesus' day would ever do that. It was shameful. He runs and he saves his son from judgment. And it costs him even more. You know, for weeks we've talked about the fact that sin has costs. 
somebody has to bear it. And I've mentioned this illustration before, you know, if if I steal a hundred dollars from you and Drew, forgive me, you're out a hundred. If I steal it and you say you better pay it back, in fact, I'm going to throw you into prison unless you pay it, then I pay it. Either the offender pays it or the offended pays it. And notice what happens here. The father is willing to pay it all. The father doesn't respond to the boy's speech. In fact, he cuts him off in mid-sentence. He doesn't respond to the crowd. There's no crowd there. He responds, Jesus says, to his own compassion. Before the son does anything, before he says anything, his father empties himself of his own dignity and assumes the role of a slave. Do you see this? This is what most people miss. In the face of his father's sacrifice, in the face of his father's forgiveness, This lost son accepts being found. You know what that means? He's willing to cease his deception. He's willing to take off his mask. He's willing to have himself be known. What drove him into a far country? His pride. What brought him back? His pride. His own desire to be in charge of his own life. And yet in the face of his father's sacrifice, in the face of his father's willingness to lay himself down, this lost son is able to lose himself in his father's forgiveness. There is only one way that you and I can successfully forgive another, and that is to be lost in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ for you. Think of the scribes and Pharisees. They say, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. But it's worse than that. For those who think their standing with God is based on their own doing, it's far worse than anything they could imagine. There is nothing you and I can do to get home. There's nothing you and I can do to impress God. There's nothing you and I can do to reconcile with the Father. There's nothing you and I can do to be the God of our, to be successful in being the God of our own life. Unless you and I see the only one who welcomes sinners. The only one that he welcomes are sinners. Until you see yourself as totally in a position of need, we will die in the wilderness. We will die In the wilderness of our own making, with our masks on, think of it. In the face of your sin and your brokenness, the Father doesn't just welcome you home. 
He doesn't just eat with you. He runs down the road to meet you. He showers you with kisses. He gives you his best robe. He gives you his signet ring and says, all that I have remaining is yours. He, fills, he, he kills the fatted calf and says, welcome home. Somebody has said, with the father, the calf is always fattened. The robe is always the best. The joy is always unspeakable. And the peace is always beyond understanding. You see, the Muslims are wrong. But so are a lot of Christians. You can't work your way home the first time or the thousandth time. Your sin's too great. The cost is too large. There's only one who can get you home to the place of abundance and peace. And that's the one who left his home to find you, to forgive you, and to free you. Mark Twain was right. This is the greatest story ever told because it's the gospel. But it's only half of it. It's the story that's told over and over and over again in your life. Are you going to nucleate your own plan? Dig yourself out of your own debt? Make a thousand more promises? Grit your teeth and try to be good. Or are you going to allow yourself to be embraced by your Father? Allow yourself to recognize that He has paid every single debt and every cost. Your answer is not in yourself. Your answer is in Him. For your own forgiveness and your ability to forgive others. It's all Jesus. All the time. Think about that. Amen.